Hey, late nighters. Thank you for joining me tonight for part three of our encounters with God. And it is truly um, probably the three hardest podcasts I've had to do because um, nonfiction and, you know, biographical um, nonfiction. It's not my wheelhouse. I'm a fantasy girl, a sci-fi, cold heart literature, but fiction. And these three have been particularly difficult because they've been painful. They've been painful. So um, Joan of Arc is our last in the three. And um, I just want to thank you for joining me tonight. I'm your host, C.D. White, and of course, this is Late Night with White. So let's not delay. Our third person, as promised, is Joan of Arc, the patron saint of France, who is known for having heard the voice and followed instructions from God. We know that she cross-dressed or, you know, wore men's clothes, and... This was actually part of the reason for her execution, as she defied injunctions against making claims of having her God and against breaking gender norms by dressing as a man. Joan claimed to have had visions of Arch, the Archangel Michael, of two virgin saints, Margaret and Catherine. Um, yet she was a child of peasants. She believed, and yet she still believed that you know, she could be used by God for a very large task. I mean, when you think about what was in her head to help with the installation and the coronation of Charles VII of France to the throne and defeating the English after, you know, nearly 100 years of war. Um, it's just astounding to me. The way it sounds to me that Nat Turner and John Brown had visions and deep beliefs about what it is that God had ordained them to do and then set about doing it. Dang the consequences. Um, but this is, this is what she was told to do. During her rehabilitation trial, it is noted that she was a singularly pious child, grave beyond her years, who often knelt in the church, absorbed in prayer, and loved the poor tenderly. So we have this young person, similar to Turner and Brown, who comes already cloaked, already religious, already pious, um, by May 1428, Joan was sure and had no doubt that she was bidden to go help the king, and the voices became very insistent, urging her to present herself um, to Robert, and these are French names, please excuse me if I butcher them, my two years of French in high school have seriously left me, but uh, Robert Baud Court, who commanded for Charles the Seventh, um, and was just in the neighboring town for her from her hometown of Valcules. Like I said, my pronunciations. 
So let's give just a little bit of background because I think you can't understand Joan without understanding the historical significance of what was happening um, in her time period. For Turner and Brown, it was certainly the Civil War, um, slavery, the advent of um, the fugitive slave laws, all those things that were brought to bear. For Joan, it was a Hundred Years' War. And this war was basically uh, a European war where the English wanted to control French territory as its own, okay? The war was fought in France. And so as you can imagine, this had this is devastating for the French people because anytime the war is being fought, you know, on your land, you're bearing the brunt of of the war. So this war with the English led to some internal divisions and in France as well. So we had two sides, the Burgundians and the Armanacs. And Charles VII was the heir apparent and uh, an Armanac. And like I said, if I'm butchering these, please pardon me. But the war had also thrown in doubt the natural or um, inclined secession for the throne. And so it was not clear that Charles VII would rule. The English had their own puppet they wanted to put up there. The French had, uh, you know, others they wanted to put on the throne. There was some doubt as to Charles VII actually being the child of Charles VI. So um, it was civil disarray. And essentially, Joan grew up on the land of, you know, um, of the Armanites. And they were constantly afflicted by the English. And so this created a growing resentment and sentiment that, look, we've got to get rid of the English. They're stealing from us. Remember, it was, you know, for the army to survive, it had to eat off the land. And so the English were still from the French to support its army. And there was just growing hatred. And definitely... Um, people wanting the war to end, and of course, for the English to be driven out. So we know that in 1427, Jones, Jones' homeland was pillaged, with cattle being taken, and it was shortly after this raid that she had her first vision. And so like Turner and Brown, um, Joan witnessed suffering. She was around 13 when she had a vision from Michael, the archangel angel, and several angels surrounding her in the garden. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking about Mary and Peter and even Jesus, these visitations from um, heavenly, heavenly beings. She said to have stated that she had these visions often and um, they would come to her more than likely when the church bells rang. And so um, she was also visited by virgin female saints who'd been martyred. And so the lit head and us can't help but see the foreshadowing, right? It's already taking place. Visions, a calling, a destiny. And we know when history is born out at, at great cost, right? So... And what's interesting, too, about Joan and that we don't see in Turner and Brown is that a young maiden was prophesied to come and save the French. 
And Joan definitely saw herself in that role of this virgin maiden with a quest from God, um, whose purpose was to drive the English out of France and restore the crown, to restore the monarchy. Um, and I just find this, the fact that it's happening in the 1400s, astounding that any young person, especially a young peasant girl, illiterate, um, would dare. But yes, she did. Um, she was very forceful and demanding. And finally, in 1429, she got a meeting with a man she was sent to help and place on the throne and went to do so in men's clothing with a small retinue of soldiers. She met Charles and impressed him, reminding him that he was indeed the legitimate heir and she was there to help him. And at this time, Orleans had, was under siege by the English. And Joan spoke about the purpose of her being there to end the siege and to help Charles um, win his throne. And so she was respected. Her virginity was um, certified, however that happens. And she was, you know, said to be a good Catholic uh, girl. And we have to remember that the Reformation was still almost 100 years away. So Charles, believing Joan, had armor commissioned for her. And um, what did he have to lose? They were in desperate straits. This war had drug on and on. People were tired. They were demoralized. Um, their faith perhaps had even waned. And here's this young girl who could at least offer some bright hope of French success. Charles really had nothing to lose by using Joan. And, you know, we have to remember a century of war had crippled the economy and um, you know, you have a bad economy, war, um, basically occupation by the English, something had to give. And Joan could be of use to him. What's interesting about this, though, in the presence of Joan, it clearly indicates that God had chosen a side. And Joan's presence now on the side of the French, her, her, her people, also indicated that God had chosen a side. And now the French had a reason to fight. So we know the story. Joan fights for all she's worth in men's clothing. Charles takes the throne and the war is re-energized against the English, who of course are vilifying her as an actor of the devil. How else could a young girl defeat them? Joan had the ear of the king and his deputies, and they had success against the English. The coronation took place July 17th, 1429. So here's the thing about politics. Politics and religion are often bad mates, right? Because they can't join hands for long. So the king now that he's had the success, now that he's King Charles VII, he wants diplomacy. How can we end this diplomatically? Joan, however, insists on fighting to rout the English and drive them out of France. But look, everyone is tired. 
Charles and the English have a truce, but yet Joan went to Compiègne against his wishes, and in 1430, she was captured. And one has to wonder if, like Moses, Joan committed the sin of place, or was she simply betrayed? In any case, Charles left her to her fate. He didn't try to, you know, ransom her. He didn't do any prisoner exchanges. Um, and we don't know. I didn't come across any historical records that give us Charles's mindset where he wrote, you know, I can no longer stand the, the virgin maiden or I no longer believe her. History just lets us know that he did nothing. And in doing nothing, it speaks loudly to his intent and what type of person he was. So, despite her success, um, and, you know, she had some defeats, but, and her, you know, without her, and I think most historians would agree, um, things would have been very different. So it also seems that in their final days, our three were alone, Joan, Turner, and Brown. The unexpected emptiness of suddenly being by yourself. Turner hid out for 30 days. Brown spent time in prison awaiting not only his trial, but his execution. Joan spent a year in prison. And it's a sad commentary about outsidership. During her trial, everything that had led to French success was undercut as demonic and unfeminine by the English. Remember, she was captured by the English. In other words, unnatural. And as one can imagine, she was found guilty. And to spare her life, she had to recount her visions. She had to dress as a woman. Basically, shut up about this being um, driven by God. Seventy charges were laid against Joan. Seventy charges. And like I said, she languished in prison for a year. She did sign a confession and agree to do away with wearing men's clothes. Um, and she would just spent her life in jail. But something about this didn't satisfy Joan, and really the English either. And as soon as she donned men's clothes, she said for her own protection, because in women's clothes, you know, she was, um, you know, likely to be attacked or molested or raped, uh, she was quickly taken and burned at the stake. And as I said at the end of the John Brown episode, she's burned until there was nothing left. Like, they burned, pulled the bones and everything from the fire, burned it again until there was nothing left. Nothing that could be made a relic, nothing that could ensure her martyrdom. But, as we know, that's precisely what happened. That's precisely what happened. Feminist writer Helen Castro notes that Joan had fans during her short life, and one of them was the early pre-feminist writer Christine de Pizan, 
who was Italian by, by birth but lived in France and spoke French. And in her writing, she compared Joan to Esther, Judith, and Deborah, through whom she said God had delivered his people from oppression. As years passed, Joan was figured too as an Amazon, one of the virginal warriors of Greek mythology, or as a personification of heroic virtue, chastity, justice, and fortitude in one ideal exemplar. And so this is coming from the Guardian magazine in the article, Joan Arc, Feminist Icon, Uncomfortable Fit by Helen Castor, 2014. Author Billy Anya states that Joan is misgendered. She states in her article, The Misgendering of Joan Arc, that we know from historical records of the Hundred Years' War era that John presented as a man with short black hair and wore shirts and shorts, doublets, leggings, and boots. So it's important to me that we understand the mantle that Joan had to take on. She had to leave her femininity behind, present as a man. She fought in battle and was wounded. She fought in war. She routed the troops. She had armor. You know, she had a sword. She had a, a little crest made. Um, and so I'm starting to understand why at the end she returned to men's clothing. Perhaps that was her more natural skin her comfort could be found there and through the changing of the historical lens we have you know feminized her probably much more than she'd be comfortable with but it also makes me think of Turner's fair but not mulatto skin and John Brown's close relationship and friendships with black people breaking cultural norms. Brown wasn't fighting for the other, nor was Moses. He was fighting for his friends and family, despite personal privilege. Turner fought so his children on a plantation not far away with no freedom from bondage. Remember, the descriptions of Turner are of a man who is wearing the impact of slavery on his body. So these three, you know, historical persons had to give up comfort and ease, witness suffering. Turner, being a slave himself, Brown, remember the beating of the slave with the shovel by a cruel master, and here Joan, the aggressions of the English while they were on French soil, suffering. And of course, Moses, who is our, our leading character, witnessing the brutal beating of a Hebrew by his Egyptian um, assailant. And of course, 
as he's trying to free them, Pharaoh adding to their labor, adding to their misery. According to Daniel Hobbins in his 2005 book, The Trial of Joan Art, Joan was tried as a heretic, not because she was a woman, though that factor played an important part, nor because she heard voices, but because she heard voices telling her to attack the English. Hobbins writes, Joan believed that God favored the French. God was on her side. As long as she insisted that her voices were saying, telling her to attack the English, she was doomed. And this is interesting from people who believe that God did indeed take sides. I mean, we're talking about the 1400s, where the, the church was preeminent. It was a part of every facet of life. Um, and then later, during the not only the Crusades, but, um, you know, the, the colonial period when it was God, gold, and glory. They would use this, this idea of God as a cause to wholesale decimate the new world and remake it into their own image and their idea of God. And if asked why, because God was on their side. What better role could they play than to Christianize the world? And then we look at American slavery opposed by Turner and Brown. Isn't this in essence what is argued, right, by their behavior? Were they cut down simply for opposing slavery or for the implicit statement that God was on their side? I think we have to be very purposeful in looking at the motivation of our three, but also what their attack on their enemies meant to their enemies. How it was seen and perceived by them. And certainly we know in the American South, they had an answer. Right? They had a very clear answer. You cannot in any ways be attacking us and saying that it's God's desire. To do so is, you know, heresy in their eyes. And we know by their deaths that they meant it. And so what we have in these three is a rebellion against the principle that might makes right. What we have is an old school biblical conflict between the way God sees things and his moral stance and the way man sees things and their moral stance. And it's clear the two are not the same. The very essence of the Old Testament is that only God makes right. The very essence of the New Testament is that only Christ and his body and his sacrifice makes right. That's it. So these voices were with Joan until the end. And we have to remember that she was judged and tried by ecclesiastical body who stated, we say and determine that you have falsely imagined revelations and divine apparitions, that you are a pernicious, temptress, presumptuous, credulous, rash, superstitious, a false prophetess, 
a blasphemer against God and his saints, scornful of God and his sacraments, a transgressor of divine law, sacred doctrine, and ecclesiastical decrees, that you are seditious, cruel, apostate, schismatic, straying in many ways from our faith, and in these ways you have rashly sinned against God and the church. It's a statement for the ages, is it not? And for all its pomp, it's rendered mute as so much as hate speech is with the passing of time. We read these words hurled at Joan. I couldn't help but bristle. I imagine them also being hurled at Turner and Brown, at King, at you know, Medgar Evers, at Harriet Tubman, at Frederick Douglass, at any number of people throughout history who stood at God's own unctioning for, for rightness, righteousness. On May 30th, 1431, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. But this burning only made her more famous and cemented her legacy and her heroic acts. Remember, we have the trial records. There was a trial. We have the statements of those who were there. Her parents survived her. Her, her siblings survived her. Her village still existed. Though... Their efforts to obliterate her by burning her into ashes, creating a, a, a mini holocaust of this one body, did nothing to stop the fearful wonder people had about her bravery, her heroism, and her efforts to drive the English out of France. So, yes, May 30th, 1431, she was burned at the stake. We have a record of the trial and its participants. But look, since written text came to be, and we've left behind the idea of just an oral history, we write things down. And so we know the name of the farmer who discovered Turner in his field and turned him in. We know that Robert E. Lee, Wilkes Booth, Stonewall Jackson, and others were there for the capture of Brown. We have the trial of James Earl Ray. We have the trial of the killer of Medgar Evers. We have the trial records of the killers of Emmett Till. It is even said that we have the trial records of Jesus Christ himself. So it seems to be a great big round and round that when people come against the state in essence, slave owners were the state. Romans were the state. 
the English and the Catholic Church were the state. I don't want to say it's a lost cause because in many ways, all three of these people were very successful. But geez, the cost, the personal cost, how young people are. I mean, Brown was an outlier because he was rather old <laughs> um, for that time. So the war finally ended in 1453 when the English were repelled and driven from France. And Joan's guilty verdict was overturned by Charles VII in her rehabilitation trial in 1450. In 1909, she was uh, beatified and finally, in 1920, canonized. And thinking about her being canonized made me think of being um, a little girl. And when you walked into the home of an African-American, they had three portraits up. Um, JFK. MLK and RFK. And I'm not sure who codified that, why it became a thing and a thing. Sometimes they'd be on fans at the church, MLK and his family, RFK, JFK. But martyrs for the cause, right? Clearly revered by African-Americans, and I suppose maybe a hundred years prior, Abe Lincoln would have had a place on the mantle and would have been revered as uh, a savior of the people. We have universities named after John Brown. Of course, we have songs written about John Brown. He still looms large in our thoughts about slavery, although he's been reduced as a footnote. I want to posit that he's causal to launching the Civil War. I want to posit that Turner is causal for launching the Civil War. And in doing so, help do it. No act of conscience, no amount of writing, no, no amount of pleading could do, which was liberate the enslaved people in this country. And we have in Joan, just this teenage girl. She's so comparable in my mind to the Virgin Mary. Hey, I got a, I got a task for you. You're going to have Christ. You're going to have the Savior of the world. What? I'm, I'm betrothed. I, there's plans. Uh, forget them. We've got something even bigger for you to do. And we have in Joan a woman, no less, 
leading men into battle and winning, encouraging them, giving people strength and hope, helping to rid them of the plague of war. It's clear that if we look at history, God picks sides. Devil doesn't. But God picks sides. And we have to be very careful. Sometimes which side we're on. So thank you for joining me. These three parties have been tough. Turner, Brown, and Joan of Arc. But we have to study nonfiction, information on historical texts, if we're to learn. And learning is much harder than um, enjoyment. I love literature. Um, but the learning part of literature, nonfictional and, you know, historical texts and history can be quite painful. And I could understand why some would not want their little pure babes to sit in the classroom and learn it. But I think at the same time, to not learn is its own sin and will cause the repetition of the very history that we're afraid of. So I guess tonight, I feel really humble. I feel really humble. I'm thinking about people right now who are marching for women's rights, for the rights of gay Americans, for the rights of immigrants, for the right of asylum seekers, for the right of people to be free and autonomous in their own country, for the right simply to exist. And I'm not on that front line. I'm not kidding myself. I'm nowhere near the front line. But some people have taken that mantle, have heeded that voice, and they're protesting Cop City. They're protesting DeSantis. They're, you know, meeting in the dark hours trying to figure out ways to bring hope and light. And I'm humbled by their sacrifice. People have died just trying to save a tree. My God. Anyone who stands up for what's right, it's easy to stand up for what's unethical, immoral. We know that. But when you're standing up for what's right, good God, you have the whole, it seems, universe against you. But I'm reminded once again that God picks sides. We have to be careful where we're standing. I want to thank you for joining me tonight and particularly for these three last podcasts. Um, I think the next one's going to be just good old fashioned fiction. Deep dive into something, lose ourselves escape for the summer.
Right. So I do have some recommendations for summer reading and I do have a list of podcasts that I'd like to record and research and they're coming. Thank you for joining me tonight and thank you for listening and thank you for subscribing. I'm seeing the podcast grow organically as people spread the word. We are now on Amazon. So you can ask Alexa to play Late Night with White and she would do so. Mm. We're moving up. We're also on Facebook. We're on iHeartRadio. You can Google us. Of course, we're on Spotify. Um, But we're almost everywhere at the sound of your voice or the click of your index finger. It's been a great night. Once again, I'm your host, C.D. White, and have a good night.